Paper Team is brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of classes for creators, entrepreneurs, and curious people everywhere. You can take classes in creative writing, productivity, and filmmaking. You name it, they've got it. So whether you're picking up a new skill for your day job, figuring out your next side project, or pursuing a long-time passion, Skillshare has classes for you. I really enjoyed Simon Sinek's class on presentation essentials and how to share ideas that inspire action and actually gave some great tips on giving a more engaging talk and crafting a narrative through line. Join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for our listeners. Get two months of Skillshare for free. That's right. Skillshare is offering Paper Team listeners two months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash Paper Team. Again, go to Skillshare.com slash Paper Team to start your two free months now. That's Skillshare.com slash Paper Team. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're doing our Paper Scraps episode of the month of August. And uh, we'll be looking at TV writing news on staffing submissions, fellowships, plus answer your own TV writing questions. This time all about career obstacles, specs, and how valuable ideas actually are. So let's get started. <laughs> First up, we would like to thank our new Patreon members who have joined in the last little bit. So we'd like to give a very big thanks to Erica, Kay, Ray, Jordan, David, and Marklin. So thank you to all of you for signing up. We hope you're enjoying your Patreon-exclusive content, and there'll be much more of that in the future. And if you want to sign up to our Patreon and get exclusive cheat sheets and episodes, you can sign up at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And we have kind of a cool announcement, not too many details yet, but we can confirm that Alex and I will be at the Austin Film Festival this year from, I believe it's October 25th through to 27th, or at least those are the days that we'll be there. And we're going to be guesting and hosting a couple of panels. Absolutely. And uh, I know you've been there multiple times. I've never been there whatsoever. It'll be my first time in both Texas, Austin, and AFF. So it's always a really great time. And if any of you are thinking about coming, shoot us a message or an email or something like that. And we'll try to run into you there. And if you are, you know, thinking about potentially going to the festival, I do recommend you check it out because it's a ton of fun. It's a great networking opportunity and you're going to learn a lot. Yeah. I think rumors are we may be hanging in the bar of the Driscoll. I think that's the the hot spot, right? Yeah. We'll be chilling with the Game of Thrones showrunners and Alec Berg and all those those people. So uh, sounds (laughs) like a plan. Come seek us out. And we are working on our second live panel as promised to our Patreon supporters for the back half of this year. Obviously, you may recall that we did our first one at WandaCon earlier in 2019, and we are planning, or at least are in the middle planning, the second live event. We're probably going to do something a little bit different. Usually, it's a full-on panel, but this time, I believe it will be something a little bit more unique. Yeah, so stay tuned for more details regarding that, and hopefully, we'll be announcing something soon. Yes, and as a reminder... Paper Tease is returning on September 16. So get your teasers in at paperteam.co slash teaser. And if you don't recall, Paper Tease is a regular segment of ours where we give feedback on your teasers of your original pilots. That's any format, any genre. It could be one hour, half hour, comedy, drama, etc. As long as it is under or up to eight pages. And again, you can send those at paperteam.co slash teaser to uh, potentially get feedback. Yeah. And we might be selecting a new mentee from all of that as well down the line. So make sure you're in consideration. Let's get to your own TV earning questions and feedback. And uh, before we start, we got to give a shout out to a couple of people that gave us awesome reviews and messages. 
Yeah, we had a tweet from Alyssa Rivas who said, I made my computer read my script back to me this afternoon. It was so motivating and helpful. Thanks for the tip. Love your podcast so much. That's awesome. I believe uh, that tip was in our TV business resources episode. I did want to say, maybe at some point we're going to record our own voice to be used in people's computers and then <laughs> we can have paper team recording or reading their scripts to them. Sure. Why not? I don't know how that would work, but uh, I'd, I'd be down. Listen, don't undersell the value of your voice, Nick. <laughs> and we also had a new review from the podcast on iTunes, and it was five stars, very helpful by Kayla H. And she said, I've been studying TV writing and I use the Paper Team podcast for help. It's been very helpful and I'm so glad they're keeping it up. Blessings. Oh, blessings to you. Under his eye. Now, in terms of uh, questions, we received uh, an email from Jen. Jen says, Hi, Alex and Nick. I get a lot out of your podcast and share the love as much as I can. I'm gearing up to apply for TV writing fellowships next year, and I have a great idea for a spec script for the Netflix show Ozark. However, as a huge Ozark fan, I have a feeling that part of my idea will also figure into the next season of the show. That said, Ozark being a Netflix show and currently filming, I've read that the third season won't come out until quarter one or quarter two of 2020, which is around the same time I'll be applying for fellowships. What is your advice on writing something into your spec show that the show may actually cover? Should I embrace the idea anyway, or avoid potentially looking like I merely rewrote the existing content of the show? Thanks so much, Jen. Yeah, that's actually a really good question that, that comes up very frequently, especially in this day and age where so many shows are serialized, and there's no quite easy answer to give in terms of, okay, I want to write this uh, sample for this very serialized show. Should I write a fake season premiere? Should I continue the ending of last season? Should I write an evergreen or attempt to write an evergreen episode? And I would suggest personally that all three of those options are valid. I think the key point here is to write something that you think you can pull off and uh, add something because you can't really play catch up continuously, especially when you look at something like Ozark in the same way that uh, another show like How to Get Away with Murder, which has so many uh, storylines up in the air at any point. At some point, you need to land in terms of where you want your spec to be placed, whether that's in the middle of the season, at the end of the season, at the beginning of a new season, without thinking of sort of uh, the continuity of the show. One thing you want to be careful of there is if you are going so hard out of your way to not write something that the show might cover in its first episode or two, you run the risk of potentially not writing something that's like the show. If you're if you're like, oh, well, I don't want it to double up. I, th I almost think that you wanted – it would be a good thing if the show ended up doing exactly what you wrote because that means that you've captured the, the ideas behind the show and, and the direction it was going. I completely agree. I feel like that is the key is to imitate and mimic the formula of the series to such an extent that you're predicting content of the show. Another approach I was going to mention is just this idea of picking up on missing threads to either enhance already existing episodes or add uh, content to maybe plot lines that they dropped. Uh, because a lot of shows do have those little bit of a loose threads that exist or dropped plot lines throughout a season. And you have the opportunity in your spec to write something that enriches either the characters or the themes and the values of that series in a way that the main show may not have just because it was under different kinds of constraints. And obviously the showrunner has his or her own vision in terms of that content. So really, I feel like that's an opportunity, especially when you're looking something like Ozark, which has a, th a theme that runs through every different season to really propel the narrative forward and, and explore things that the original show does not. 
So another topic that we wanted to address is something that I'm sure a lot of you have seen before and something that we've seen recently in some emails and Facebook posts and whatever, and that is the notion of somebody who has what they consider a great idea for a TV show or for a movie or whatever it happens to be. And then they are looking for a writer to write it for them or someone to take it to the studio for them. And, and all they're really sitting on is just an idea or a concept. Yeah. And the, the reason why we wanted to bring that topic to light in this episode is because we've received quite a few now emails and uh, suggestions from uh, listeners and our audience in terms of, oh, hey, I've got this amazing story, uh, whether because it's you know based on my family or an IP that I just wrote, and I really need to be connected to this really high-level person at Disney or at whatever company. And the reality is, well, first of all, we don't really know you, so we're not going to connect you to these people. But secondly, we, do we even know those people, Nick? Are we in contact with any of these people? That's sort of like the struggle that we're living in as writers, regardless of our level. I guess it's demonstrates perhaps a fundamental misunderstanding of how the industry works in some ways. And that is that you need to have something of real value to offer on your own in order to attract interest in a project in order to get it to some place. And whether that value is your skills and your track record as a writer who has perhaps written movies before or been on shows or whatever, and then you're an interesting part of that package and you have things that you can show on the page that have been executed or you have, you've demonstrated the potential to do that. So people will take your ideas on a pitch like that, or it could be something else completely. But you know, the one thing that unfortunately isn't necessarily valuable and there's a lot of floating around is just an idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you got to remember that television on some level, especially in the writer's room is based on not just one idea, but many different ideas. That's sort of the, the ins and outs of a writer's room is people in that office environment, in that conference room, pitching ideas all day long for weeks and months and uh, and years on end. So having an extremely good idea isn't valuable in of itself. It's about the execution at the end of the day. And the other thing I want to mention uh, about the, this whole topic is I feel like the misunderstanding that you're referring to in, in some capacity is rooted in ego. It's this idea that, okay, I've got this amazing story. Everyone is going to want to hear it because it's amazing. I came up with it. I'm this amazing human being that can sort of shepherd this idea and bring it to light. If only if only someone would give me the key to Disney, to Bob Iger's address, mm -hmm. I promise you it would be the number one box office movie of all time. Those movies and those shows are crafted in a communal aspect. It's not based on one person's idea. It's based on many people's perception of that idea and work and rewriting of that concept throughout. And the same holds true for TV as uh, it does for movies. Yeah, I agree. I think that's perhaps a cognitive bias or delusion, I guess, in, in some people that, you know, if only someone, you know, if the head of Disney or Marvel or the top agent at CAA could just see what I have, I would be instantly shepherded in and heralded as the, the next great writer of our age or that kind of thing. When realistically, you know, what you should be working on instead is putting that stuff down on the page and making it so good that when you do hand it to someone and they read it, they're like, this is really good. Let's, let's start working on getting this made or getting you on a show or whatever it happens to be. Uh, there is inherently no real value in just an idea that you pitch to somebody. Like Alex said, it is all about the execution. And then it's about the value that you're bringing on top of that to some sort of project to get it made. 
100%. And don't forget that the goal here should be hopefully to build a career. Can you name one single human being or TV writer professionally that has made their entire career based on a single idea outside of maybe Dick Wolf and Law and Order? <laughs> but even Law and Order uh, has an empire. Even Dick Wolf has multiple different shows. It's not just one idea. And the same holds true for any single writer, whether it's a feature writer, a novelist, or a TV writer. They all have different ideas, but more importantly, they have different executions of those ideas. It's something that can be repeatable in multiple different uh, scales, but more importantly, it's it shows versatility. It shows that you can generate different content for different audiences. It can also show that you are, as a person are flexible as a creative person. Right. And I'm sure that Dick Wolf didn't just like hop on a plane from <laughs> Kansas or something and show up in Hollywood and be like, I've got a great idea, guys. Cops. Like, what if cops solved crimes on TV? You know, there, I don't know the story behind it all, but there was definitely something about the execution and the characters that were in play that made people pay attention to that and spawned this entire franchise and this, this kingdom from that. So, yeah. And if you really want to understand sort of the process of getting those shows made, even from the perspective of one human being having that idea and pitching it, you should read this book that I referenced before called Desperate Networks, and it walks you through how a bunch of iconic shows came to be, notably CSI. CSI is probably the closest example that I can think of in terms of a show that was born from a single person with an idea that pitched that idea and then sold the concept of the show. But if you even read just a CSI chapter in Desperate Networks, you'll understand that a lot of hoops had to be jumped through just to get to that level. And even then, it was about the the person pitching that idea and then associating themselves with or packaging themselves in a way with someone who can execute that idea. It's not an idea in a vacuum. It's again, all about the execution. It's all about who you are as a person, how you connect to it on a personal level. And as important, it's about the connections that will get you to that level. Right. That's why even established writers who have worked on shows for many years who are still lower or mid-level will still be paired up with some sort of showrunner who has 20, 30 years experience in the industry, who has the reputation, who has run shows before. It's very, very rare even for a working writer who has the connections in the industry to be able to just go and sell their show on spec and become uh, the next Sean Ryan or Shonda Rhimes. And on that note, we had a couple of uh, questions and thoughts on our message board on, on Facebook. And the first one came from Marcus who asks, in your opinion, what is the main thing that is holding you back as a TV writer? We had some interesting responses to this. Some people were saying that they thought it was their lack of meetings or connections or access in the industry that was holding them back from kind of having that, you know, foothold as a writer. Some people thought it was, you know, the quantity or the quality of the feedback they're getting on their scripts to make themselves better. Other people just kind of thought that they were perhaps perfectionists or maybe needed to learn more and that sort of thing. So I thought it was an interesting discussion about, you know, I mean, what do you think that kind of means to you, Alex? Like what is holding you back as a TV writer? What is that? Yeah, actually, I mean that is that is a tough question uh, to answer because I feel like every TV writer at every stage of their career suffers through this idea that oh I'm not quite where I want to be in this moment in time. But if you think about it, and I know this may be a little bit esoterical, but life isn't about a goal. I feel like a lot of people when they think of being or becoming a TV writer, they have this mindset of oh I'm going to be staffed and then I'll be easy after that. It's sort of a, I made the the first. Uh, the first gig, and then it'll be a career from then on. When the the truth is that, sure, getting that first job is really difficult. Getting the second job is equally as difficult, if not more so. And then it continues from that point on. So 
the main thing that's holding me back as a writer, I would argue, is the same thing that's holding back everybody else. And that's just the track record and um, regularity to be putting your skills to use. Like we spoke about just before, there is a potential you know, fallacy in assuming that the only thing that's holding you back is the lack of people reading your work or, or meeting with you or that sort of thing. Because often that is something that you maybe don't have that much control over. Now, you could just be getting out there and networking more and that's how you're going to be meeting more people, then great. But aside from that, perhaps you know, instead of looking that as the lack of meetings as the cause of your problem or the obstacle itself holding you back, perhaps there are things around that where it's maybe your writing does need to be a little bit up to the next level in order to for the people who are reading your stuff to get you those meetings or recommend you to those people. Or you need to have more than just the one or two scripts that you have right now. And you need a bunch more different scripts to maximize the number of opportunities you have to be read by different people at different places. So try not to kind of pin all of the blame on this, you know, the gatekeepers or, or whatever it happens to be and think about even if that is the case, what can I be doing? What do I actually have control over that I can change that will help me? To that point, I will mention the TV writer roadmap that exists on uh, tvcalling.com where I do go on about this idea that the classic saying, success is preparation meets opportunity. And I feel like the same holds true in TV writing in any entertainment industry career where the only thing you should be worrying about is what you can control, not what you cannot control. So what are the things you can control? Well, you can control how much you write. That's the number one thing. Okay, I can bang 10 scripts a day. Probably not. I can bang two scripts a year. Maybe a little bit more realistic. That's part one. Part two is how many people are you meeting, connecting with on a genuine basis, not just about networking, but really making connections, valuable connections that are going to last you for your entire life. That's the second thing that you should be worried about. The third thing you should be worried about is just how people are perceiving you. And that's probably the one thing that a lot of people are not well, maybe they're not as worried about as they should be, or they're not working on it as much as they should. And that's the question of branding yourself. How do people perceive you? How is the classic story of why do you write what you write? What are people saying about you, not behind your back, but in terms of the meetings? How are your reps speaking of you? How are executives sharing your content? What are they saying about your narrative? Those are the questions you should be asking yourself in terms of putting yourself to the next level because you need to craft a narrative. You are your own business at the end of the day, so you need to craft your narrative in terms of who you are as a writer and what you can do better and improve in those different areas. Right. We had another question on the Facebook group as well from uh, Alyssa Rivas, who we mentioned earlier from the tweet. And she says, does anybody here get imposter syndrome during their first draft? Well, the short answer is yes. I'm sure you do too. But everybody feels imposter syndrome at every single draft, I would argue, every single moment of every day. Well, maybe not every single moment of every day. But imposter syndrome is rooted in you know this idea that, oh, maybe I'm not cut out for this. And I do think it does manifest itself a lot in the first draft because that is when you are confronted with the equivalent of the blank page. Now, hopefully, if you have a first draft, you have an outline, so it's not literally a blank page, but it is the the sort of the the crossroads where you are confronted with the idea of oh this is the moment where i need to execute on this awesome idea i need to add the dialogue i need to add the tone i need to add the little bit of oomph that is going to cut through the 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 pile of scripts but if you think about it 
the first draft is maybe the least important draft day. It's called a vomit draft for a reason. It's the draft that doesn't matter at the end of the day. It's the draft that should be the easiest. Ironically, it's the hardest, I know, but it should be, if you think about it on the intellectual level, it's the draft that matters the least because it's the one where you can just feel free to unleash whatever crap you want on the page. <laughs> it's the one where you can write the bad dialogue, the where you can write the bad descriptions of those characters. I would say that you should embrace that, maybe not that imposter syndrome, but you should embrace feeling awkward in that first draft because, again, it is the vomit draft. It is the one place where you can be bad. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I think that it's so highlighted in the first draft because you know that's what you're doing is just getting it down on the page. It's not going to appear anything like what the finished product will be. So, you know, but we have this inner critic in our head and this editor that's sitting there being like, well, that's not good. And you should go back and change that line when really what you want to do is just kind of like let your your creative freedom out onto the page and get it all down and then worry about all that later. So, I'm pretty sure it's a universal thing that everybody kind of feels like, oh, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. My writing is bad when they're putting it down on the page. The great thing is you don't ever have to show that to anyone. That's just for you. And then you get to redraft and redraft until it is in that place. So don't let that hold you back. Yeah. And I think the way to combat this is something that someone brought in that message thread. And that's the idea of pushing through. You need to get it done as fast as possible because it will be bad. Let's be honest. But perfect is the enemy of good and good is the enemy of done. You need to be done before it can be good. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, it does, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Linearly speaking, you need to finish the script before it can be good because once you have the content on the page, that is only then that you can rewrite and make it as close to perfect as you can. Before that concept exists, it's only an idea in your mind. It's an abstract concept where, oh, this scene is going to go this way because uh, this person is going to react that specific way and this cool line is going to be set at this moment. It's a little bit of tempo in your mind, but it's not actually actually practical in terms of the script itself. Yeah. And like Alex said before, that discomfort is actually a good thing. It means that you're going to keep looking for areas to improve and ways to make it better. It's kind of like how pain isn't actually the bad thing in your body. That's the thing that's giving you the signal that something is wrong and you need to go put a Band-Aid on that or you know, stitch up your wound or you know, take some aspirin, whatever it happens to be. It's just a signal to you that something needs to be done about this. And it's good because if you didn't have that, you would just be sitting there going, wow, this thing that I just crapped out on the page is the best thing I've ever written. I'm going to send it in to my friend who knows an agent right now and we'll see what happens. And and it's obviously not going to be great. So at least if you have that thing going on in your head where it's like, this could be better, then you will make it better. Yeah. Think of it this way. The people we mentioned at the top of uh, this podcast that are sending us emails about their ideas, they don't suffer from imposter syndrome. They think they have the best idea ever when they should probably think you know, more towards the imposter syndrome end of the spectrum where they're not quite at the level where their ideas are worth uh, the goal that they think it is. Yeah. It's that Dunning-Kruger effect thing in psychology where the people who are bad at something don't know enough to know that they could be better. And the people who are good at something know so much that they are overly critical of themselves and feel like they're actually not that good at all. So keep that in mind. If you're criticizing yourself, you're probably on the right track. <laughs> what a depressing way of uh, reassuring our audience. <laughs> All right, let's get into some TV writing news. And at the top of the hour is uh, a news about how the fellowships uh, second rounds are happening right now and probably uh, deep into the interview stages as this episode is getting released. 
And so congratulations to all who made it this far, including at least one person from our Facebook group. And uh, we're sure many of our listeners as well. Yeah. And whether you need some help to prepare for those interviews or a refresher of the selection process, general info about the fellowships and writing programs to keep in mind for next year, you can check out our TV writing program series, which people seem to really enjoy. So go back and find those episodes now. And in terms of interesting threads that we picked up on the Twittersphere, there were a couple from Justin Marks, uh, obviously the creator of Counterpart, who is uh, show running another series currently. And the first thread tackles his use of the WGA staffing submission system that is currently in place uh, that he uses or is using currently to staff his new room. And uh, the main takeaway from uh, that thread was essentially he was saying that there's an option in the staffing submission system where you can, on top of the script, you can also submit a cover letter where you have the ability to pitch yourself why you're good to be in the writer's room, why you fit the show, why you wrote what you wrote. And essentially, Justin was saying that most writers, at least half of the writers and submissions he was getting, were not submitting with a cover letter, which is a lost opportunity because that is the one place where you get to pitch yourself as a writer, which was before the ATA thing happened, was sort of the, the reason why agents were in existence uh, to pitch you as a person in the same way that uh, managers are doing it uh, for meetings and developments. Yeah. I mean, think about it like any other job application. The people who are going to get noticed are the ones who take the time to personalize their application. And whether it's the cover letter or the email that they send through to the thing, uh, it's going to help you stand out if you can actually sell them on in a concise, you know, interesting way why you're right for the job. And like many other job interviews, it also helps if you know someone there. Yeah. And again, this is the, the one place where you can have agency back, pun intended, where you can actually pitch yourself as your writer and differentiate yourself from the other people in, in some capacity. Why should you be the person staffed in Justin Marks's room? Why is your sample maybe not better than other people's samples, but more relevant to that particular show? Why is your background relevant? Those were questions that were being answered by agents and managers before the ATA thing. And now at least there's an opportunity that you, the writer, can pitch yourself and put yourself in a position where you can sell yourself in a positive way that's relevant to the show. The easier you can make the job of the person doing the hiring, the better. If you give them all the reasons on the page and you tick all the boxes of what they're looking for in terms of the kind of writer they want and the background and the experience they want, they don't have to go and scrape through your sample and scrape through your resume and try to make those logical connections themselves in their head. They're already reading hundreds and hundreds of submissions. They don't have the time to do that. So give yourself the best chance possible. Yeah. And uh, another thing I, I will add on, on that is if it is actually hard for you to come up with a cover letter to pitch yourself to that show, ask yourself, are you actually right for that show? For example, maybe it's something linked to your background as a person. Maybe it's a specific interest of yours. Maybe it's tied to the actual sample that you're submitting. It's It sort of has the same theme or the same values or the same storylines. Whatever the case may be, this is something that should be a little bit organic. It shouldn't be that difficult to sell yourself in terms of the show. Obviously, it's always hard to sell yourself. You're your own worst critic and etc. But in terms of connecting the dots of this is the sample that I'm submitting, this is me as a writer objectively sending myself to this room that I believe I'm a good fit for. These should be organic things to come up with in that cover letter. In the same way that in a general meeting or a specific uh, showrunner meeting, you'll be talking about those things anyway. So put those on the page. 
All right. And flowing on from that Twitter thread, uh, there was actually a slightly later Twitter thread from Justin Marks. Again, we promise we're not stalking you uh, (laughs) uh, regarding uh, staffing once more. And this one was basically just kind of his anecdotal observations about the submissions he received. He said he counted about 100 submissions for his show, and they came from, in no particular order, managers, the studio, friends, and the WGA portal. And that was about it. I think he said out of the entire 100, only one came from an agency you know, that had signed the, the agreement. Now, obviously, there might be a, a slight bias in that regard because there are only maybe three or four agencies that have actually signed that agreement. So, you're not going to have as wide a pool of writers to submit for that. But his overall point here was essentially that agencies aren't that invested in staffing lower level writers anyway. It is not a big part of their business. It's maybe, you know, if a writer's earning $2,000 a week or whatever, that's $200 a week for the agency and that's that's chump change to them. They're really interested in these giant packages and these development deals and all that other stuff that's making them a lot of money. And so your agent in their, you know, the 12 hours of their day or what are the eight hours of their day, they're not going to be dedicating a lot of that time to putting a staff writer on or whatever it happens to be. So, you know, agencies, you know, he's just going back to that point that they kind of have this conflict of interests and that they're not really wanting to do their job because they don't have the same incentive there. Right. And it goes back to something we, we've uh, tackled before in terms of the evolution of access as lower levels. It boils down to the idea that the people who are going to be in your corner and are going to be hustling the most besides you, hopefully, are your contacts that you value most, as well as maybe a boutique manager or boutique agent. At least uh, it was a boutique agent a few months ago. And the reason why that is ties back to what you just said, Nick, in terms of the value of those huge agencies. They are behemoth in the industry for different reasons, but the one reason they're not a behemoth for is for staffing multiple lower levels. They are not valuable enough for those big billionaires, investors uh, from China and Russia and America. They are not valuable to most of those people because they're not engaging enough money to be worthwhile for their time. Now, conversely, the people that are going to be most worthwhile to you are the people that value your time and your money the most. That's why you want to go for a boutique manager and hustling your contacts because they value you more than the sort of the, the billionaire investor. Another interesting point that he brings up later in the kind of the thread and the replies that come on is essentially this kind of um, monopolization of information. And for so long, the big agencies really did have the first lead on every single job that was coming up, most likely because they represent the writers and the showrunners who were staffing the show in the first place, or whatever it happens to be. They have those really close relationships with the studio they do deals with every day. So they get the very first whiff of, we're maybe thinking about picking up this show, start sending your writers in, you're going to get first dibs. And it's unfortunate because a lot of these smaller and boutique agencies would only hear about that weeks later, by which chance, you know, perhaps the showrunner is already inundated with all these submissions and stuff. So I think that the WGA staffing system is a great step in that direction of actually letting people out in the world know here's what shows are staffing. I don't think there's any real negative to the showrunners and the people involved for people to be aware that their show is staffing and have the widest pool possible to be able to be sent to them and have the best options available. Yeah, absolutely co-sign everything you just said. The the staffing grid is a good step in the right direction towards more transparency and this idea of democratizing the system of access, especially for the lower levels. Now, there are multiple issues in terms of the guild that we've uh, already tackled in uh, prior episodes, but it is at least 
least one step towards that direction. And hopefully there will be even more transparency in terms of staffing. The big drawback to so much transparency is obviously this idea that you're going to get people submitting themselves that shouldn't be submitting themselves or weird uh, fillers that are not quite ready yet to be at the stage where they should be staffed. That's a, a hard sort of metric to gauge outside of obviously the, the example of someone who's never written a script or, or what have you. But I do feel that it is a right step in the, the right direction, but I don't know where that will lead us uh, within five years. There definitely does need to be some level of filter in place. That's what managers and agents and, and things like that are for is to filter out who is legit and who can write and whatever. And there's always going to be that barrier to entry anyway, as we can hear from aspiring writers who are like, well, I just don't have the connections. I don't have the meetings or whatever. Your, your stuff is going to have to be put in front of someone in some way. So there's already a level of filtering in place that requires recommendations and vouching from someone regardless of who it is. I don't think anyone aside from maybe SNL did, I think this year is going to put up a public submission for all comers to submit for their show. So I think that that will be, there will be a natural kind of checks and balances in place for that. But I'm, I'm for me, I'm all for democratizing the process more. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, to me, it comes down to sort of the, the idea of who vouches for for whom the the guild system was obviously sort of a one step in terms of oh you need to be in the guild you need to have had an agent you need to have been staffed before that was sort of the undercurrent for the staffing boost uh, in terms of the reading system but I'm curious to see where that evolves especially when we are in an age where more and more people want to be TV writers more and more people are lower levels that are attempting to be staffed this is something again we've covered many times before just the idea of the WGA is already playing catch up with the lower levels that they already have in the guild to be staffed, much less the people that are outside the guild that are trying to get in the guild. So it's a lot of uh, sort of combating forces that are working towards uh, hopefully a positive goal. Obviously, we we all want more uh, diversity, more voices, uh, more writers, and more opportunities for people. But uh, I'm just a little bit wary of where the sort of the the practicality of of that system moving forward. Not for the current system that exists. I'm just saying moving forward in five years. I'm not sure how democratized they will. Be. Another big piece of news, and we've been kind of monitoring pretty closely the emergence of a lot of these new OTT services like the Disney Plus and the HBO Max. Disney just announced that they are going to be doing a bundle basically of a lot of their streaming services, which will be Disney Plus and Hulu and also ESPN Plus for only $12.99 a month. I, I know I sound like I'm spooking it there. Like, <laughs> that's right, just $12.99 <laughs> and you call now and you'll get, but basically like that's insane. Before this, you were paying like $40, I think, for some of the like YouTube lives or the Hulu Plus or whatever to get these kind of access to these services. People were paying at least, I don't know, eight or nine bucks for Hulu. ESPN was God knows how much, but you know, you're going to be getting this brand new streaming service of Disney Plus, which I think they said was only going to be around six or $7 plus all of these other things people want. Like it's pretty hard to go past a deal like that. They're obviously loss leading to bring in the subscribers. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, obviously we're on track for Disney to buy out the entire world. So soon you'll have uh, for $20, you'll have your entire life bundled for you probably. Maybe your toaster oven will be delivered. It's hard to deny the the value that this bundle gives in terms of the content and the entertainment. I'm really curious to see where that places the rivals, especially HBO Max. Man, I, I really can't stand that name. But <laughs> and Netflix and Apple Plus in terms of their content, especially because it's it's going to force those people to drive their prices down or at least stay at the same level that Disney has. So it'll be an interesting next few years in terms of the value of the OTT in terms of the, well, in the context of what they bring to the table. 
Yeah, this feels like a very calculated price point as well because apparently it's identical to the standard Netflix subscription rate. So they are trying to compete directly with Netflix for your, your money and your subscriptions and whatever and offer more than them, I guess, in this regard. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how all this shapes up as the years go on. The next article that caught our eye was uh, something from the LA Times called TV Networks Vow to Cut Back on Commercials. Instead, they stuffed in more. And as the title more than implies, the idea was that years and years ago, the TV networks to combat the streaming services were pledging to amp up the amount of content on their linear television services and cut back on commercials, when in reality, the opposite has been happening where to counteract, I guess, the loss of revenue from OTT services, they are increasing the commercial time. Uh, I believe the last quarter, commercial time rose 1%, which doesn't seem that much, but if it continues increasing month after month, it just uh, climbs up to a substantial amount of time that's lost in terms of the content that's uh, being generated. I believe a show like Big Bang Theory was famous for diminishing its amount of runtime. Uh, if you look at the first season of the Big Bang Theory to the last one, I believe it's lost nearly one, if not two minutes of content for a whole episode, which is a huge amount of time. Yeah, it's kind of insane. Like you said, if you look at the trends, a half hour episode of television or a half hour time slot is roughly now like 20, 21 minutes of actual airtime and the rest is ads. That's a third of the time you're watching is just ads. And I see why the commercial networks are doing this because that's where they get their money from is these advertising slots and they're struggling to compete with these streaming services. But then I think a big reason why people are tuning out of the networks is all of the ads and the diminished runtime and the creative constraints they're putting on their TV shows and the you know the kind of intense pressure for the show to succeed commercially with this outdated rating system. So it really feels like a catch-22 or like in a rubrus that's going to eat its own tail. And uh, the more they push commercials in, the less people are going to want it. And the more they're going to push commercials in, and eventually it's just going to go up in flames. To give you an idea, Big Bang Theory started around the 22, 23 minute mark and ended around the 18 to 19 minute mark. Uh, that's a remarkable difference in the span of uh, a decade. And uh, like the article said, the, the only options that the networks or the linear TVs have are to either raise the prices of the advertising or run more commercials or sort of uh, do a little both. And uh, they seem to be picking more commercials. And in part because it's hard to justify raising prices when there are fewer and fewer viewers watching linear TV. The only content that brings in that much linear TV viewers are either live events like sports, or I was going to say the Oscars, but nobody watches the Oscars anymore, <laughs> or event TV or the closest thing to event TV like This Is Us or Game of Thrones. And, and Game of Thrones actually is not on a network that has ads, it's HBO. So it doesn't <laughs> need to raise prices in that capacity. But if you look at the classic networks, they don't have that many shows that are bringing that many viewers, especially when you compare it to Netflix and uh, soon to be Disney. Yeah, again, the the TV landscape is changing rapidly every single day, every single year that we are a part of it. And I think it's interesting as writers to to watch this transformation and pay attention to these trends and you know see how that will affect us in the long run. Especially when you look at the amount of content, this is like directly affecting us in some capacity because if you are only writing 18 minutes as opposed to 25 minutes, this may not be symbolized in the page count, but it definitely will be felt in terms of uh, the narrative that you can give in 18 minutes and the, the journey of the characters. I know this sounds, again, a little bit esoterical, but it is true that we're an art form in some capacity. So if you're reducing the canvas, it does reduce the ability for you to tell a compelling story. 
Absolutely. And before we go, don't forget that we are now on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll get exclusive content, opportunities, and merch, like cool cheat sheets, uh, episodes, all that good stuff. And we can keep producing a great show for you every week. So thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 149. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have your own TV writing questions that you would like to get answered, you can send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Next week is our big 150. That's the 150th episode Oof. of Paper Team. And we are going to be doing one of our retrospectives where we look back at our best episodes, our favorite guests, and our favorite moments from the, what, three plus years that we've been doing this now? <sighs> Has it been that long? Yeah. We'll also be catching up with uh, some of our favorite guests and your favorite guests too. So tune in for that next week. It's going to be incredible. We'll see you then.